high-resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Welcome to This Week in Retro for the week of December 21st. Coming up on today's show. A December to remember. A dev kit discovery. The Oliver Twins return to Dizzy after 26 years. And the Apple schematics that are worth a fortune. All this and more on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. Neil, it's December. It's a month of cold weather for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere. We've got short days and lots of celebration. And pounding down some nog, Neil. Where do you stand <laughs> on eggnog? I'm, I'm more of a mulled wine kind of a guy than eggnog, which I know is very popular in your neck of the woods. But mm -hmm. it's not a massively popular drink over here, eggnog, despite originating over here back in medieval times. Um, but yeah, mulled wine or mulled cider sometimes is, is the drink of Christmas over here. Uh, we don't like to cross-contaminate our drinks, so I'll clink your glass of eggnog against my mulled wine, being very careful not to spill any into mine, please. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> you definitely don't want to cross the streams of eggnog oh, and mulled wine. That's no good. <laughs> but, Neil, it's also, and get ready for it, it's December. That's oh, yeah. right. Well, December is almost over at this point. And what is sure <laughs> to become an annual event, December gathers retro enthusiasts together to celebrate early PC gaming. A genre that, in my opinion, uh, has been granted pretty short shrift in the past uh, in the YouTube world. And, and let's be honest, what other world is there? Uh, many of the heavy hitters uh, of retro have been creating videos honoring the mighty command prompt. Uh, LGR did an extensive rundown of Christmas Ducks 2000. Adrian's Digital Basement has a fantastic look at the Quorum, I think is how that's pronounced. A PC that looks like a blender. And our own Control-Alt-Reese, who submitted this topic to our subreddit, reviews some 3D-accelerated games with the S3 Verge video card. Neil, what went on over in the cave for December? Oh, I, I reviewed a wonderful new sound card for December, and it's incredible that this thing exists at all. It's a brand new ISA, yes, ISA sound card in 2020 with everything you could ever dream of having on a card. Um, hmm. This was called the Orpheus uh, sound card. And uh, it's never coming out of my DOS gaming PC now that it's in there. It really is perfection. It's got everything you could dream of. So, uh, John, if you can include a link to my video review of it in the show notes, that would be great. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've seen that video and I did enjoy it mightily. Uh, I still remember my first DOS machine. Uh, it was way back in the late 80s. Uh, my dad got an 8088 XT clone with glorious, glorious CGA graphics. Uh, this was my, my second computer. It was replaced uh, by my dad. Uh, he, he wanted to do some real work, and the Atari 1200XL uh, had fallen hopelessly behind in that regard. Um, and we didn't replace that XT until 1995, Neil with a Pentium 1. So you can imagine the leap forward between, you know, an 8088 with CGA graphics all the way up to a Windows 95 machine with Pentium 1. I mean, big, big jump. Yeah. Um, I do have some good memories with that machine, though. Uh, it's the computer where I first discovered leaderboard golf and secretly Leisure Suit Larry. I was quite the rebellious child, Neil. How about you? What are some of your early DOS memories? Well, while you were secretly playing Leisure Suit Larry, I just flat out asked my mum to buy it for me on my birthday. <laughs> mum, can you buy me Leisure Suit Larry 3 Passionate Patty in Pursuit of the Pulsating Pectorals, please? And you know what? She just went out and bought it for me. So. Wow. What a mom. What a mom. That's awesome. 
<laughs> but uh, my earliest DOS memories would have been at other people's houses because we didn't have an IBM PC compatible in our schools. We didn't have them in my house. And most people I knew had games consoles or one of the many homegrown 8-bits uh, or the C64 or the Amiga here in the UK. It was only the very well-off families who seemed to have IBM PC compatibles at that stage. And um, that's not a blanket statement. That's just my own personal experience of growing up because there were plenty of them around. But it was only those who were well off relative to my family who seemed to have PCs until about 1993, 94, when we all started migrating to them. Mm -hmm. And the family I knew who had a PC, uh, they had a son at Oxford University. So when he was away, his little brother and I would sneak into his bedroom and use his PC. And and I remember all of those CGA magenta games uh, like uh, Alley Cat and Dam Busters and games like that. There was also a Robotron clone he had. I can't for the life of me remember the name of it, but there, there are so many Robotron clones, it could have, could have been called anything. I remember the PC speaker screaming at us as we played. And it wasn't really until 93 that I moved to PCs myself and away from Amigas. And um, that's the period, sort of 93 to the mid-90s, when I have my best memories of figuring out DOS, enjoying games that are actually in 256 colours, with a sound blaster card with great soundtracks you know that's the golden era of dos for me and i get that people are nostalgic for the earlier cga and ega stuff like you are clearly because that was their computer at the time but i don't have a personal connection i I don't really associate the earlier dos stuff with events in my life i don't picture myself sat at a cga ega pc i don't get nostalgic about that that would have been an amiga or an amstrad cpc for me i think so, you know, I, I have a question for you. Do you think that DOS gaming in general is is undervalued or, you know, uh, underrepresented on YouTube? It seems to me that when you look at the retro scene as a whole uh, and, and you look at what's being reviewed, it's a lot of console stuff. It's a lot of, uh, you know, game computer based stuff like the Amiga or the Spectrum or stuff like that. It doesn't seem like especially early DOS games get a lot of coverage. Uh, do you agree with that or do you am I just watching the wrong videos? <laughs> well, I think a lot of the larger channels have gone for that, you know, the console stuff because there's a larger audience for it. So mm-hmm. they're just going for that bigger target. But I don't think DOS has gone unnoticed. You look at the amount of output LGR puts out about DOS based systems for a start, there's there's plenty of DOS-based content out there, and there's lots of interest in it. Do you remember a few weeks back, we looked at the charts of the how many billions of pounds the gaming industry was worth? And we had mm, yeah. we had the PC gaming, and, and what surprised me was PC gaming had a greater income than console gaming. Mm-hmm. And all of those PC gamers are potentially interested in the history of the platform. There's a massive audience out there now. So, you know, they want to know uh, about the great soccer video game wars or, you, you know... How did FIFA become the huge franchise that it is? How did PC racing games lead up to where they are now with games like iRacing? What's the history of sim racing games and things like that? And this all has roots in MS-DOS games. Yes, other platforms as well, but you know, plenty of roots in MS-DOS games. And I don't know, I guess you're just not looking in the right places, John. You've, you've been blinded by the Amiga, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you may be right, Neil. You may be right. Uh, I could be seeing the retro computer world through those uh, red and white ball-shaped <laughs> glasses. 
but I do think a big part of why there are not might not be as much interest in classic DOS gaming has to do with the wide variety of hardware that was out there and just the amount of years involved. Uh, if you want to get into the NES scene, for example, there's only one thing you need to buy. You know, you've got everything you need when you buy a NES. Uh, you, you know, not counting homebrew, uh, there is a small window of time in which these games were released. And if you want to get into DOS gaming as a genre, I mean, we're talking about uh, tons of different potential setups that you might need to be able to run some games at, you know, full capacity. It's more than a decade of, of games being released. And with the most primitive games you can imagine at the beginning, all the way up to games that look pretty much modern at the end, um, it's it's to me, it's a daunting task to try and make sense of it all. And, uh, you know, you also have to deal with all the different incompatibilities with the hardware. You've got different resolutions and refresh rates, configuring all the hardware inside the machines. And even if you're using emulation, you've still got to do a, a bit of uh, virtual fiddling. Yeah, if yeah. I would and, agree. I, I certainly agree with all that. And I, But I think it is getting easier. Um, sure. Packages like DOSBox are enabling you to just package up a game with the whole operating system, all, all sort of in one little executable, if you like, where all of yeah. that is sorted out for you. So it's certainly getting better. But yeah, I do agree with you on that. Yeah. And I think that as we see more and more packages, like we talked about Exodos a couple of weeks ago, as we see more and more uh, things of that nature make emulation easier, I think we will see an even greater uptick in interest in DOS gaming, especially from the earlier ages. So a happy DOS ember to one and all. Uh, if you're planning something special to celebrate, let us know in the YouTube comments or on our show subreddit and just search uh, hashtag DOS on YouTube to see the many videos that are being released on this topic. Now, everybody loves a bit of digital archaeology, John. Some unused game assets or some hidden code, like you remember there was a Spectrum emulator that was found hidden in GoldenEye on the N64. I, I love mm. little things like that. Uh, but the thing that gets people really excited is unfinished or unreleased games found on the hard drives of old dev kits. And that's exactly what's been discovered this week on a Dreamcast dev kit. Now, hopefully I'll get all of the players' names correct in this. It was user Shriek on the Dreamcast talk forums who made public the contents of a dev kit that he had. He shared the hard drive and it was quickly turned inside out by other users to see what they could find. Another user by the name of Megavolt85 found an unreleased game by the name of The Simpsons Bug Squad. And then finally, user PCWizard13 got the game up and running <laughs> and shared the GDI image for others to try. So a really good collaborative effort there on the Dreamcast talk forums. Well done, guys. Now, Excellent use of Leet Speak. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> Now, um, game is a bit of a stretch for what you might call this. It's, it's probably better described as a tech demo, but it's a really promising one. I think it looks absolutely gorgeous, and it's just another reminder of what a capable machine the Sega Dreamcast was and how it did really meet its demise far too soon. The demo uses cell shading, that really lovely style of 3D rendering that makes it look cartoon-like. It presents the familiar interior of the Simpsons house with Homer Simpson strolling around, and that shell shading, it's difficult to say, shell. <laughs> shell Third time's the charm. God, it's all that Christmas mold wine. The shell shading really does work well. It captures the look and feel of the Simpsons TV show brilliantly, I think. Gameplay-wise, it's far from a complete game. 
you play as a bug and it's a bug that I, I don't think I've ever seen in the Simpsons. It's it's a bit out of place, the main character, but you play as a bug, you can jump and glide around the house and that's all there really is at this stage. You can just explore the level. So, you know, it's it's a really nice looking thing. Game-wise, do you think there was potential for this to be developed into a game, John? What do you make of this? Um, this one is a little bit weird. Uh, I've always thought that The Simpsons, just as a property, is is one of the best kind of licensees you can choose to make a game around. You've got mm-hmm. just a huge cast of interesting characters, uh, the whole city of Springfield to explore. Everybody that's watched The Simpsons already knows about all these places they want to explore them. Uh, and of course, there's tons of opportunities for building in some humor. But this game just looks like a bad ripoff of Mr. Mosquito. I mean, uh, nothing against Mr. Mosquito. It's a great game, but half of what makes it great is just its Japanese quirkiness. Uh, When you lose that, you lose me. Now, um, I think that, you know, obviously this is a game very, very early on in development. And who knows, maybe this bug was going to, it was on its way to do some really rad stuff in the Simpsons house. But as it is, it did not get me excited. Yeah, yeah. I'm not familiar with Mr. Mosquito. I'll have to look that one up. Oh, you um, should. Is that on the Dreamcast? It's on the PlayStation. On the PlayStation. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to Simpsons games specifically, I don't think the Dreamcast got any Simpsons games, did it? I, mean, I know other consoles got um, consoles in the same generation got Simpsons Road Rage. There was Hit and Run. There was yeah, I, I don't think that they got any. The, the Dreamcast was just available uh, as it was a viable platform for such a small window of time. I guess that ne- there was nothing, you know, it didn't really move the needle for any developers to run out and, and, and do a Simpsons game for it. Kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, clearly not. But there's, there's a huge amount of Simpsons games to choose from across all of the platforms and across a, a wide period of time. It's such an old TV show now. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had to pick a Simpsons game, John, from any platform, any period, what would you go for? Uh, well, I mean, just like the, the, the series itself, there have been some good and some bad. Uh, I think Hit and Run which was covered recently on an episode of the ARG Presents podcast, which is a podcast you should check out if you haven't heard it before. Uh, It's a fantastic game uh, that really delivered on the promise of a virtual Springfield to explore. You can go and it's almost like GTA where you can run around all the different locations and and do missions and things. Uh, The original arcade beat-em-up, of course, it's classic. It's fun in small doses. Uh, If you fire it up on main, you're going to realize that it's not nearly as much fun when you're not pumping quarters into it, but it's still it's still it's still good for five or ten minutes um on the loser end of the spectrum um they uh i think that you know the the original games that made their way to the nests and the amiga like uh, bart versus the space mutants oh, uh I'm, those are those are not great games uh they're they're sort of like platforming adventure games but that sort of oversells the fun right there uh not not very good i don't think yeah, I think the best thing about the Amiga uh, Bart versus the Space Mutants was the intro. I would just fire it up to watch that cartoon-like intro <laughs> and then yeah. switch it off before the game started. Yeah, good move, yeah, good move. Yeah. How about I, you, Neil? What did you like? Uh, I I really liked Krusty's Super Fun House on the SNES. Mm. Uh, I think it was there was Krusty's Fun House on the NES as well. Mm-hmm. But I, I played the um, the Super Fun House version, and that was kind of like a puzzly game. Yeah. And I really liked that. Yeah, that was good fun. Anyway, back to this unreleased game. It was developed by the studio Red Lemon, who were largely made up of ex-Gremlin Interactive staff. That mm. was a, a UK-based game studio that goes way back to the 80s. They, In this period, they also released Braveheart, based on the Mel Gibson film of the same name, but I think that was on Windows, and then they went bankrupt in 2003. So 
not a great deal to say about Red Lemon, other than that gremlin-based heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the studio's founders has actually spoken up about the game when he heard it had been discovered. His name's Andy Campbell. And he said the following. He said, we had a great coder who had developed an amazing cell shading engine for the Dreamcast. I knew Fox pretty well. So this was a demo we created and I pitched at them. We were never commissioned, so this was technically never an official title in development. And he goes on to say that the tech was also pitched as a production tool for the show itself, but no game was made, though. So they were that confident in the technology that they thought perhaps the show itself could be produced using it, which is quite the bold claim. And actually, if you think back to that period and also Futurama, which was by the same team, you Mm. have those kind of 3D section oh, yeah. of the animation don't you that was when the the whole computer graphics side of things started to creep in especially in futurama in a big yeah way. yeah so maybe they were trying to pitch that to to you know the technology to do all of those effects and who knows maybe it would have propelled the studio to some very big paychecks if they'd pulled yeah it off. i mean that's not the worst idea in the world if you've got a game you can only sell that game one time but if you can license the technology i mean just look at something like unity i mean they're they're doing okay financially yeah absolutely so if you'd like to see a video of the game in action or try it on your own dreamcast then check out the show notes for links john i know that you like me Well, you don't spend your weekends designing PCBs because as much as we love our classic computers, designing devices for them is a whole other specialism than our skill, which is mostly playing games on them. And that's why (laughs) I want to thank our sponsor for today, PCBWay.com. That's right, Neil. You know, I would not know where to start when it comes to creating an add-on or a game cartridge or anything like that for my machines, but you don't really have to. Uh, PCBWay.com has a great community projects area on their website where you can search for your favorite system and find tried and tested PCBs, including joystick adapters, diagnostic cartridges, and a whole lot more. And with a single click, you can put it in your basket. And I think this is really a great alternative to uh, finding these things on eBay at inflated prices because, you know, there's plenty of these things ready-made being sold for quite a price. But you can get what you need at PCBWay.com, just solder on a few components, And you've done it at a fraction of the price because you can get five PCBs for just $5. So you can knock up a few boards for yourself and for your friends too. So um, check it out, pcbway.com. And thank you to PCBWay for being our sponsor today. Neil, I've been doing some thinking. It's a dangerous sport. Every country taking part in the video game revolution in the 80s brought something uh, unique to the table, something that had never been done before. So when you think about America, uh, I always think about the first person dungeon crawler, dungeon crawler genre, like a wizardry games like that. Uh, This was an entirely new genre of game. They take they took a pen and paper uh, RPGs and they brought them into, you know, the first person. Uh, If only I had a time machine to prevent that from occurring. I hate those games. But anyway, (laughs) Japan, Uh, Japan gave us the scrolling space shooter, you know, Space Invaders, Galaxian, Galaga, the list goes on. And England, Neil, England, England, I believe, gave us the adventure platformer in the form of a humble egg named Dizzy. Never before had gamers moved through a world of items to collect and drop and pick up again and accidentally drop and combine that with reflect reflex based hazards to avoid and sprinkle in some puzzle solving all wrapped up into one package. It's hard to believe that this entire genre was conceived in a Wiltshire bedroom by two teenage brothers, fellow members of the bald brotherhood, the Oliver twins. Now, Neil, 
where were you on the scale of Dizzy fandom? Is everyone in England obligated to like the Dizzy games as part of their oath to the crown? <laughs> well, uh, Dizzy, uh, it was a big deal for us micro owners in the UK, and especially for Amstrad CPC owners like me, because the Oliver Twins developed everything first on the Amstrad, and then they ported it to the more popular system of the time, the ZX Spectrum. They had a little mm. interface that sat on the back, just squirted it into the ZX Spectrum from the Amstrad. And more often than not, it was the other way around. So us Amstrad owners got ports that didn't really take advantage of the superior Amstrad CPC. <laughs> so uh, for a start, it was really nice to have a natively developed game for our system. But of course, it was released to all of the popular 8-bit platforms. And no, it wasn't to everyone's cup of tea. It could be frustrating. And at times it could be brutally hard, especially some of the uh, other games like Treasure Island Dizzy, which only gave you one life. That was Oh my gosh, really, that's the really worst. Brutal. <laughs> Um, but on balance, I'd say that, yes, we were pretty fond of the egg and it was an unofficial mascot of sorts for British 8-bit gaming. So I think you've picked the right one there for what, what Britain gave you in the 80s. Of course, we gave you a whole lot more. But yeah, Dizzy was a good export, I think. Many, many more Dizzy games were released after the original cartoon adventure, as it was called. But it's been some time since the game was developed. And I understand that the Oliver Twins have had their hand in the new Dizzy game. So what can you tell us about it, John? Well, the Oliver Twins have emerged from their 26-year egg-free sabbatical to join forces with the team behind 2017's Crystal Kingdom Dizzy. And uh, they've developed this new entry in the series for the uh, 128K and Spectrum Next computers. And they call this game Wonderful Dizzy. Uh, This time out, Dizzy is exploring the world of the classic children's book, The Wizard of Oz. Uh, Neil, have you had a look at this? What are your first impressions? Mm, Yeah, I have. And uh, this was kind of the the way they always did the Dizzy games, just a thinly veiled ripoff of a classic story. But (laughs) (laughs) The Wizard of Oz this time. And I was watching Twitch streamers Nikki and Bunty streaming it the other day. And I have to say, it looked amazing. The use of colors in the game. well, in the game and also splashed across the static part, across the dashboard in the lower half of the screen as you play. It's it's just stunning. Someone on the team has done really well on the look of the game. Uh, It looks and plays like a classic Dizzy game with the lock and key style puzzle approach. So as you say, getting an object to get past a, a puzzle, finding another object. But you do have an inventory so you can shuffle multiple objects around. It looks like it's as hard as the classic Dizzy games too, because halfway through the stream, Nikki and Bunty switched from playing it on a mister to playing it on an emulator because they wanted to be able to use save states. Mm. <laughs> so they were just dying too many times. But you want that. You want that in a Dizzy game. You don't want to just sit down and complete it on your first attempt. So that was good for me. What about you, John? Yeah. I can't get over the fact that they didn't build in any password or save mechanism into this game. I mean, in, in 2020, and especially it's a step back from because I believe that Crystal Kingdom Dizzy uh, did have uh, a password mechanism. So that's that's unfortunate. But looking at the positive, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's a beautiful game. Um, and I mean, I say beautiful in that very specific spectrum sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bright neon colors all of the clash, uh, the spectrum more so than any other computer has a certain look to it. It's just like a Picasso or, you know, an Andy Warhol print. And this game is a case study in how to do it right. I think, uh, all of your classic dizzy elements are here, the bop and soundtrack, the three inventory slots. Uh, I do like the fact that they've retained dizzy's Indiana Jones hat. Also, it makes him look a bit more ready for action than his uncovered shell from the first few games. 
Um, gameplay wise, it's also what you would expect from Dizzy. Uh, you know, his patented rolling jump is still present. Uh, you're still working with flip screen jumps onto off screen platforms. So if that sort of thing isn't your bag, uh, there's not much here to draw you in. But it doesn't matter. Uh, this game was designed for fans of Dizzy. It's a love letter to all of the decades of enjoyment gamers of every age have gotten out of the series. And the best part is they're giving it away for free. This was actually one of the stretch goals for the ZX Spectrum Next Kickstarter. So even if you didn't order the machine, you can still reap the benefits of its creation. So if you've got thoughts on the Dizzy series and this new game in particular, join the conversation by leaving us a comment on the This Week in Retro YouTube page or on our show subreddit. If there's a story we love as much as unearthing unreleased games from a dev kit, it's a rare item selling for big numbers at auction. And this is one juicy auction, John. Mm -hmm. This week, the hand-drawn set of schematics and programming instructions created by Steve Wozniak in 1975 were auctioned off. These documents relate to the prototype Apple II computer that Wozniak and Jobs sold from their parents' garage at the very start of the home computer boom. In fact, some would argue that they lit the touch paper under that boom. The schematics, mm, yes. yeah, the schematics sold for a whopping $630,272, which is insane, I think. But if you take a look at them, they really are an important slice of home computer history. They're really colourfully drawn by Wozniak who included a letter of authenticity with the sale, which, of course, would have really helped with the final sale price. And that letter reads as follows. He says, These documents, circa 1975, are my original Apple II prototype schematics and programming instructions. They are precious. On these work-in-progress diagrams, you can even see my breadboarding technique, where I'd go over drawn connections in a red as I soldered the wires in at the time. I favoured using purple felt tip pen for writing, so it's interesting to see how these notes uh, have progressed decades on. The prototype was hand-wired while I was still an engineer at Hewlett-Packard's Advanced Product Division, where I was involved in the design of handheld calculators. So uh, really nice that he's put that seal of approval on it and gives you an insight into how he worked. You know, you can just imagine him going over those connections in a red felt tip pen uh, as he as he soldered them in on his breadboard. John, did you put a bid in? What was your upper limit for this? <laughs> well, Neil, uh, I am not what you call among the wealthy elite. So <laughs> let's just say my upper limit would involve figures in the mid three digits. So <laughs> off by a factor of 10 or so. Um, but just like the high dollar uh, artwork that you see being auctioned off these days, uh, these schematics are original and one of a kind. So I can see how they'd be snapped up at a high price. Uh, after all, uh, Claude Monet's Moulet, a painting of some haystacks, Neil, just sold for $110 million last year. So looking at it that way, this is this is a bargain. I mean, yeah. they're practically paying you to take these schematics away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and just like a, a classic work of art, you know, when you can see the brush strokes on the art, how they've been laid down, and you can understand how the artists worked. You can see the same through how Wozniak worked, and I think that Absolutely. really does add to the value. I think it does. So there were some other items that sold at the same auction, including an Apple One computer, of which only 175 were ever made. I think only half are known to exist these days. These were the handmade ones that you see in wooden cases as opposed to the mass-produced Apple II. And that 
Apple won at auction sold for $736,832, which is incredible because I remember seeing an Apple One, I think it was at the Science Museum in London about 15, maybe 20 years ago. And at the time, that was valued at around £100,000. So an increase of over six times the price since then is a pretty good investment. And these things are only going to go up and up in value, surely. Mm. John, if money was no object... Is there a system or a piece of computing history that you'd go out and buy? Well, before we go any further, I think we should say a few words about exactly what these schematics are. Um, You know, when I think about schematics, I think about something like blueprints. And these are, they're, they're not exactly blueprints. This is more like paying half a million for a working sketch of a painting rather than the final version. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, I would rather see Waz redraw these more neatly and in full color and actually produce lithographs of them and sell them. Um, you know, if money were no object, that kind of schematic would be just the kind of thing that I'd snap up, even at, even at that inflated price. Um, in my opinion, you know, unless you've got unlimited shelf space or if you're building a museum, having rare prototype hardware that in some cases barely functions, uh, it, it doesn't really make sense to me just because of the amount of space that it takes up and its comparative you know, uselessness. Whereas I, as an art fan, I could easily find enough wall space to frame these schematics and sort of gaze at them as I'm going about my business during the day. But at any rate, having something on my wall that's the value of a couple houses and cars put together is really something I can't comprehend. How about you, Neil? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should look at the patents because uh, patent applications are public domain. So what you can do is you can get nice patent images of the Apple II, frame them and put them up on your wall. So maybe that would that Fantastic would save, you, you know, save you about $630,000, John. <laughs> you should be a financial advisor now. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a tough question. I, I personally do love prototypes, and it's probably an element of exclusivity. If you've got it, you know that nobody else has got it, or very few other people sure. have got it. Um, you know, seeing those big, messy, wire-wrapped systems before they get consolidated down into the final design, I love that. And I don't know if it still exists, but I've seen photos of the prototype for the Amiga 1000 back in the day when it was taken to trade shows and it was huge and it was made up of multiple boards for all the custom chips, which were all fanned out like an open book. And it was working away impressing people with the boing ball bouncing around on the screen. So if money was no object and if it still exists, I'd buy that. Ask me tomorrow. I'll have another answer, I'm sure. That's just, just <laughs> the way it is. But yeah, I, I do love those things. But you're right. I don't know where I'd put it. Well, I do now. I have the bigger cave, but it would take up a significant chunk of the cave I've got now. So yeah, these things do need to go to proper museums where they've got the space, where they can display it and where the public can see it, I think, Mm -hmm. definitely. So thank you to Retroviator. Retroviator, I think that's how we say it, for submitting that story to our subreddit. And if you'd like to include a news item in a future show, then head over to reddit.com and search for This Week in Retro or find the links in the show notes. And wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope you have a wonderful Christmas and thank you for listening and supporting This Week in Retro. Merry Christmas, everyone. Thanks for listening to This Week in Retro. Join our show subreddit to contribute your favorite news stories. And if you really enjoy our show, then visit coffee.com forward slash This Week in Retro. That's ko-fi.com forward slash This Week in Retro to put a tip in the jar. Help us spread the word about the show by telling a friend, leaving us a review on your podcatcher of choice, and subscribing to the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. We'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.